I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of The Lives of Stonehenge, a new short podcast series from the London Review of Books. I'm Rosemary Hill, a contributing editor at the paper, and in this series I'm looking at what people have thought about Stonehenge over the past few hundred years or so, what it is, what it means, and why it has come to loom so large in the story of this country. In the first episode, we saw Stonehenge through the eyes of two architects, Inigo Jones and John Wood, who were inspired by it in their designs for Covent Garden and the city of Bath, and how these in turn, the idea of the square, the idea of the circus and the idea of the crescent, had a huge influence on the development of towns and cities across Britain. None of this, of course, got us any closer to explaining how or why Stonehenge got there. Jones's theory that it was an early Roman construction didn't really convince anybody, but what it did start was a great tradition of rows about Stonehenge. So today we're going to be talking about the next episode in this argument, looking at the work of two antiquaries. We're now in the middle of the 17th century, in the middle of the civil wars, a few decades after Jones wrote his brilliant but misguided book, and we're meeting the great antiquary John Aubrey, who was spending a lot of time at Stonehenge measuring, drawing and thinking, and then we're going to take it up in the 18th century with another antiquary, William Stukeley. And to discuss the work of both of them, I'm delighted to be joined today by Kate Bennett, a lecturer in English at the University of Oxford, who's currently writing a life of John Aubrey, who left his mark on Stonehenge, didn't he, Kate? He did. He was the first uh, field archaeologist, and um, the circle of chalk pits at Stonehenge is now called the Aubrey Holes, which was a name given to it by early archaeologists in the 1920s. Aubrey was born in 1626, and as I've said, he went on to become a great antiquary. But before you, before we get into his life, Kate, perhaps you could just tell us a bit more about what an antiquary is. Well, an antiquary is somebody who studies the material remains of the past. In a very textual age, Aubrey struck out and started asking questions about things like Roman towns, horns, barrows, uh, ditches, highways, and... Pavements and coins. Um, he collected um, objects and donated them to museums. And he's a founder member of the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, where his objects were donated. And eventually, he gave is the first person we know to have given anything we could call a paper on archaeology to the Royal Society. But he started very young, I think. He did start very young. Before he was eight years old, He already knew the art collection at Wilton House well enough to do the guided tour. He had met the philosopher Thomas Hobbes and struck up a friendship which lasted a lifetime. He had already seen two stone circles, um, the one at Stanton Drew, which is, I think, the second largest in the country. He knew Stonehenge because his family farmed nearby and had to cross Stonehenge to get to Wilton House to pay um, their dues to the Earls of Pembroke. 
He knew monastic manuscripts, um, he knew medieval buildings, and he also knew the shipyards at at Bristol. It is extraordinary. I think when you have to make a big effort of historical imagination to understand that these things were not only, the stone cycles were not only not yet tourist attractions, we'll come to that aspect later, but that people didn't necessarily think that they were artefacts at all. And one of the things that's astonishing about Aubrey is his brilliance at seeing for the first time what's always been there. And so spurred by James's um, inaccurate book about Stonehenge, he started to go and look at Avebury, which people were not, I mean, there is still today, as people know, there's a village in the middle of Avebury. It's not necessarily immediately clear what this thing is. And Aubrey was the first person, I think, to actually say, no, no, these are not just random rocks. This is actually a stone circle. Well, he was he was staying in Marlborough for Christmas and they all went hunting the hare. And they went straight across the downs and Aubrey found himself in the middle of something um, extraordinary that he didn't know was there because although he'd been on the road between Marlborough and Bath, you can't actually see the site from that point at all. And in fact, it was very difficult to put the site together visually because it was all farmed and there were hedges everywhere. Um, So both Aubrey and Stukeley had to climb over hedges in order to kind of get a sense of it. And it was this sort of magical moment for him. He'd just left Oxford. It was 1649, which is a massive turning point, really, in um, both the political history of the country and the intellectual climate. Because, as he once said, before 1649, it was difficult to have a new idea. Well, he says this extraordinary thing, which again is people comment on what's happening in their polit- politically in their own lifetimes, and we almost always get it wrong. With hindsight, you look ridiculous. But Aubrey says that, that, that there was this moment in 1649, the end of the First Civil War, uh, where suddenly it became OK to think differently from your parents. So you're moving from the, a culture of the wisdom of the ancestors, if you like, to the new learning. And Aubrey embodies all of that But at the same time, he's a folklorist. He's interested in the old stories. And he's slightly regretful about what is being lost, but very aware of what is coming. And his ability to see, after he's sort of shaken himself down from reading James's book and thought, that was clearly nonsense, he hits on this, what he calls an algebraical method. Because, as you were saying, the whole point about antiquaries before Aubrey was that they didn't bother with things like Stonehenge because there's nothing written. So, like, what would you say? And he says, well, what you can do is compare and contrast. You can make the stones speak for themselves. So what he does is he makes accurate drawings and he tries to find points of comparison. Um, and he does this with biography as well. He, you know, collects, you know, sets of eyes. Um, and he, me- I mean, he measures Hobbes's head, which is a kind of interesting thing to, to contemplate. But he starts to collect similar things. And I think that's why he's so um, invested in the early modern museum, because that's a kind of repository of material that you can 
um, it's a sort of investment for the future. And, and in fact, one of the things that he gave the Royal Society um, repository was samples of stone from Stonehenge, of, of the two kinds of stone, um, the bluestone and the sarsen stone, along with the stone from Avebury. So he's working out that the stones have not magically appeared and they haven't come up, um, as uh, Christopher Wren suggested, from beneath the surface of the earth through volcanoes, but that they've been moved from an area 19 miles away called the Grey Weathers. So he's looking at an artefact and he's looking at another artefact at Avebury, and then he begins to consider all the others, as you say. To, so there's, there's always an aspect of antiquarianism which is to do with collecting. Yeah. And, of course, if you just collect stuff and don't do anything with it, that's not very interesting. But but the idea of the collection as the way to begin to make all these comparisons. And then he thinks, well, or he knows that um, these stone circles crop up in Ireland where the Romans and Romans never got to Ireland. And then there had been another book in the meantime, as I say, this is the beginning of centuries of rows about Stonehenge. There was a book by Charlton suggesting that these things were Danish. And he said, well, Danes didn't get very far in Scotland, so they're not Danish. So then he has the great, in a way, the greatest insight, which is that he invents prehistory. Suddenly, there is a before time. There is. And it's he thinks it's a temple of the ancient British people. And he, he he goes systematically through through the text that that we have, but the thing that he's really holding on to is the fact that he knows from again um, a, a, an antiquary of, of the 16th century that there's a, a Welsh monument called um, Cerrig Idrudion, and he's thinking that's that that word druid is is kind of capturing a, a piece of information that's that's hasn't made it to the written record and that's that's both a, a kind of something which is as a hinge he calls it the hinge of the discourse but he won't the problem is that that then stops him publishing because he wants to collect um, a significant body of data but because he hasn't got that particular piece of information because he hasn't visited north wales he kind of holds back from yes. over developing what he's doing Well, this, of course, is the story of many antiquaries' lives, but Aubrey's to an extreme extent, that they're always, they're going to publish. As I say, that's one of the reasons why somebody else publishing sometimes kicks them into actually doing something themselves. But most of the time, they're waiting for another bit of information, another fact. And Aubrey, of course, left his papers in the most appalling state. And you are the latest in this great historic relay race to rescue Aubrey from himself. But the thing about the the hinge, the um, Welsh monument and the word druid, this is the point at which the druids who loom incredibly large for the rest of of history um, around Stonehenge, Aubrey as far I mean, very little is known about the historic Druids, but in his idea of a before time, a pre-Roman time, all he's got is Druids. So he sort of, I mean, I imagine him just kind of sticking the word Druid on as a kind of place marker while he's waiting to find out something yeah. else. He doesn't actually mean to open the floodgates, which we will see with Dukeley he did. No, I mean, he first came across the word in a way that kind of was sort of significant for him um, when he went to Ireland and saw it in the Irish Bible. 
and was then kind of yes he he sort of had it on the back burner and that that was really his method he had a huge number of projects all running at the same time and if there was a kind of um, academic community who would support him then progress would be made in one area or another because he wasn't a rich man we have to point that out well no he wasn't. Um, I mean, he well, he he started as, as as quite a prosperous man, and he you know went to went to France and saw monuments there, which was you know significant. And they're beautifully drawn, and he managed to, although his academic education was rather disrupted, he managed to take art lessons and he managed to take mathematical lessons. But in midlife, there was a, a financial crash, and he ended up. I mean, he refused pressure to become a clergyman, you know, which was the the obvious thing to do if you, if you wanted to pursue intellectual interests. And he ended up staying with his friends, who were very happy to have him for long periods of time. And uh, you know, it was quite a good idea, really. Some of his friends had um, excellent books and were interested in the latest ideas. But it did disrupt his his work. Yes, he, so he becomes a kind of wandering scholar in a way. But as you say, very agreeable person. So everyone was delighted to have him to stay. And I think the other, because in the background to Aubrey's own disruptions, his financial failure, his romantic entanglements and all those things is, of course, this huge rupture in English society of the civil wars. And Aubrey, who'd grown up lamenting, as he says, the Reformation, he wished that they hadn't destroyed all the monasteries. And then in his own life, he sees again the sort of stream of national life and society brutally disrupted. But then also, like Jones, that means he brings his own experience to Stonehenge. So when he's on the Salisbury Plain, one of the many other theories that he's out to contradict is that the long barrows on, on Salisbury Plain were where the soldiers, the dead soldiers, were buried after Hengist had, had massacred the British. And he says, no, 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 no. Um, after a battle, that is not what happens. No, he says um, they, they'll have left the bodies to the kites and the foxes. He's seen that himself. And he's also, when he goes to survey uh, Stonehenge, he's spent a, spent a lot of time in Oxford. Now, Oxford is, is, has got civil war um, fortifications because the king had his court there. And when he's uh, in his chapter on barrows um, in, in his manuscript, he's actually included the modern ones. So he's got this sort of sense of um, a barrow is a barrow is a barrow. Yeah. And you, again, it's one of his sort of, you know, points of comparison that uh, the best way to find out um, how something is made is to have practical experience of uh, someone who who actually does things with their hands. Well, that's one of the reasons that he's so interested in talking to all sorts of people yeah. and particularly people who may have memories of crafts that, I mean, even then, you know, there were certain kind of crafts and yeah. techniques that are dying out and he's interested in that. That is balanced by the very new learning empiricism, yeah. which means that he was the first person to measure Stonehenge properly, do a proper survey. Yes. I mean, so when he uh, first gets interested in, in Stonehenge, he's already a, a, a member of what's the Proto-Royal Society, which is the Oxford Philosophical um, Society. So he's thinking in a, in a very new way about landscape um, and about, about technologies. But he also does something that's very specifically his own, which is to talk to ordinary people. 
or to talk to local people. So the first thing Aubrey always does when he turns up somewhere is to get talking because people, because he's aware of, of how fast um, the physical landscape is changing. So as early as 1649, he's on Stonehenge talking to people who live nearby and they are telling him about the um, excavations that were done by the Duke of Buckingham in 1620 and They've found, you know, charred remains in one barrow, and apparently the um, the duke took away a, a silver-tipped drinking horn, um, which his grace kept in his closet as a great relic. Now that would be Anglo-Saxon. Well, that's interesting because I knew. I mean, the the Duke of Buckingham dug this big hole in the middle. Mm. Um, for for James the sixth and first, mm. but I had no idea that. And they, they, I've various things were found in yeah. the hole in that yeah. kind of maddening way that people just make these very general references but do we know where the the drinking horn went no i mean i, I no we don't know <laughs> we don't know where it went but it's interesting because if that was 1620 that's actually the year that the duke of buckingham is commissioning van dyke to do a painting called the continents of scipio which has roman friezes in it um, from from the collection of, of the Earl of Arundel. Yes, and as we were talking about last time with Inigo Jones, James VI and I has to big up this idea of Britain because mm. he is the King of Scotland and England. Yep. So huge emphasis on um, mythological origins for this, as it turns out, deeply historic idea, which is in fact completely new. Mm. But no, Aubrey's delight in the new and in the old is very striking. But he doesn't, in the case of Stonehenge, his really um, useful information doesn't really come from the people he talks to. It comes from doing a proper plane table survey. Yes. I mean, uh, I mean tell us what a plane table survey uh, okay. is. Well, you can still, I mean, if you if you go on YouTube, you can be taught how to do plane table I'll surveys. I'll do it as soon because, as we finish this. Absolutely. Because people have been using, it works so well that, that um, people are still using um, a, a very early 17th century method. And you simply put a piece of uh, a large piece of paper on top of a board. You put the board on a tripod and you get it dead level. You put across it a, a, a ruler with measurements um, and some form of sight onto it. You line it up with something. In Avebury, it was the parish church. And then you plot what you want to record onto the paper. And then you take it away and you turn it into a proper plan. But that means that you've got the exact relationship between the objects um, recorded on your on your paper. Now, this was checked out in by a, uh, an archaeologist in, in the late 80s, and, and he found some small errors. But basically, this is an extraordinary achievement. Um, and Aubrey did it with somebody else over, over five days. When he went to Stonehenge, he, he said he took a kind of review, um, but that was mainly make you know finding the the difference between what Jones because you know the, this is this is him engaged in saying Jones has misrepresented the, the nature of Stonehenge. Jones is trying to make it pretty um, and regular and Roman, and in fact it's you know it it's it works differently. It's got it's got its own kind of uh, geometry, but it's it's a it's an irregular geometry. Well, of course, Aubrey is actually interested in what the geometry is, whereas Jones, who, as far as we know, there's no evidence that he actually even visited Stonehenge. I mean, it, 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 that is one of the biggest differences between 
the old and the new style of scholarship. I mean, it took a long time for anyone to realise that it was quite important to actually look at the stuff literally on the ground. And it's, I mean, we, we mentioned Charlton earlier, but but in the introduction to um, his piece, he says that what, I mean, and it's good coming from him because um, he didn't actually examine it um, quite so closely, but he said that we need to, we want Stonehenge to tell its own story. We want it to have a sort of, we want to wake it up and get it to talk to us. He says this extraordinary thing about the stones being nigh disanimated by Mm. time, which is wonderful, Uh, but also to keep the political story in play. Mm. Part of the modern, well, I mean, at the time of, we're talking about modern mythology of Stonehenge, is very deeply attached to the civil wars and to Charles II's flight when he found himself in Stonehenge. I mean, it's an extraordinary moment. We all think, well, we're brought up to remember him hiding in an oak tree. But actually, at the time, the story of of the fleeing king in Stonehenge was much more popular, more vivid. Exactly. He was he was hiding. Um, he was he was, you know, I mean, it's difficult to hide in stone. Yes. I mean, they they were going to search the house where he was hidden. Mm-hmm. So they they said, you know, make yourself scarce. So um, he went to Stonehenge and spent a whole day there having a lovely time. And of course, when he came back from France, you couldn't get Charles to shut up about about the, you know, the um, flight after the Battle of Worcester. And the stories go on and on and on. In fact, um, Pepys has to write them down at one stage and, um, to the king's dictation. So there was nothing more fashionable than, I mean, if you wanted to get a book published or you wanted, um, you know, court um, status, um, somehow engaging Charles's uh, endless anecdotes about about the flight from Worcester was was a very good way to go, and that's what Walton Charlton did. He did, though. In fact, I mean, all, I think it's another thing that has to be borne in mind that at this stage, the antiquaries. I mean, we tend to think of them well as Aubrey was, you know, surrounded by piles of paper mm-hmm. and rather abstracted. But it was always political yeah. because you're always writing about land, and writing about land in any form is always political. And in fact, Charlton's account, with its preface by Dryden and where he finds it to be Danish, which immediately people realised it wasn't, Um, and the coronation place of kings, which was a very unusual view because most people took it for granted that it was some form of religious structure. And then everyone says, oh, well, Charlton's just a creep sucking up to Charles II. But actually what he says is this is where the Danes elected their kings. It's an argument for constitutional monarchy and for a monarch who rules by consent. So once you get past Dryden's slightly effusive preface, it's a very different kind of argument. Well, I think he is a creep, you see, because oh, fair enough. Um, he he wrote that. I mean, we can date it from something that he says to to the 1650s. So, so it's Cromwell. So what he does is kind of dig out his manuscript. Right. Put, put, if you put a... So Retrofit it. Retro, yes. The, the, yeah. more, the more obsequious you can be, the less likely the king is to get past the nice bit, um, <laughs> which is all about him. So I think that's what he did. Um, and it, was, it, it came out in, in 1662. Um, it's got sixteen sixty three on the title page, but that's how these things work. Yeah. Um, but by that time, Charlton is collecting um, a gang of people who can, you know, make him more prominent. And Aubrey is one of those. They're already talking and sharing books. Yes. But Charlton is obviously, as you're making quite clear, much more of um, a competent careerist than poor Aubrey, who is just so nice and so charming, but very poor at organising his thoughts. So that when he died, moving on, 
almost everything he'd written was they'd managed to wrangle out of him an account of Stonehenge, which went into the Britannia. Mm. But most of what he'd done was left unpublished. So we move on into the 18th century, where we run into William Stukeley. And Stukeley had sight of Aubrey's manuscripts, and this seems to have lit a train of ideas in Stukeley's mind. Well, he had he, he didn't have Aubrey's manuscripts. He had a copy oh, made right. by one of um, Aubrey's antiquary friends called Thomas Gale. And Thomas Gale made this, made this copy, but the uh, plans of Stonehenge and Avebury um, aren't Aubrey's carefully plotted ones. They are copies and they're less good. So I think that helped Stukeley. I think Stukeley was was very inspired by all manner of things that, that, that he saw. He was by the combination of putting Stonehenge and Avebury together as a kind of sister monuments, um, which was something that Aubrey offered. But also, you know, of course, he, he introduces the Druids. Well, yes. I mean, we, to say it a bit more, I mean, Stukeley was somebody who kind of moved through all the professions and brought again, like Jones looking at it as an architect, Aubrey looking at it as someone who's lived through a very bloody and difficult war, Stukeley's first, um, well, he read law, but then he became a doctor and he practised vertical dissection mm. and he translated that skill to his excavations at Stonehenge. So, I mean, the problem, of course, with dissection is that it destroys its own evidence. But that idea of rather than like the Duke of Buckingham, just digging a big hole, the idea of working down in layers begins with Stukeley. Exactly. Stukeley, he's the first person to report, you know, the stratigraphy of, of, of sites. So, you know, the layers, the layers of material that you find, you know, this is where the flint is, this is, this is where the loose soil is, um, is something that, that he's very careful to describe. And I think that comes straight from anatomy. Yes, but he also, had, I mean, he spent a long time, he found himself a patron in the Earl of Winchelsea mm. and spent four or five years in the summer mm. in the excavating season yep. at Stonehenge measuring. He deals with, um, poor old Inigo Jones gets biffed off very quickly because he points out that we do know what um, the Roman foot was and the measurements of Stonehenge do not conform to that. Mm. And he's starts off, I mean, there is a view, archaeologists find Stukeley a very difficult figure. And the sort of prevailing archaeological account of him is that he starts off as a perfectly sensible field archaeologist who then gets religious mania and becomes like Hamlet, mad North Northwest. But that isn't really the case. I mean, he held all these ideas together, but he did begin with a lot of measuring. He also um, coined the word trilithon, which of course is now very what we call them at Stonehenge, but just from the Greek meaning three stones. So he was, again, like Aubrey, looking with fresh eyes at what had always been there. He was the first person to notice the hugely significant fact that it's oriented to the midsummer sunrise or the midwinter sunset, but he talks about it being oriented towards the midsummer. Yes, and he was the first person to notice the avenue and also to notice the cursus. So he is seeing a larger landscape than Aubrey um, discusses. To say what the cursus is, I mean, he calls it the cursus, and we still call it the cursus. Mm. He thought it looked like a sort of Roman racetrack. Yeah. So he gave it that name, though he didn't suggest that that was what it had been, and we still don't know what it was, so no. we still call it that. Yes. 
exactly. I mean, it's one of the things about Stonehenge that it's it's got all these, you know, it's like the slaughter stone, which is very early 19th century and very fanciful. So that, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's a kind of um, blank canvas for people to sort of, you know, project. Well, yes. And as you, you can watch the archaeological accounts changing um, in, at the height of the British Empire, it's all about conquest. And then you get um, much more re- 20th century archaeologists talking about cultural fusion and people coming together there. So it does. Jaquetta Hawkes, the great archaeologist, said famously of Stonehenge that every age gets the Stonehenge it desires or mm. deserves. Mm. And Stukeley Stonehenge is much larger than Aubrey's. He sort of, in one sense, sees further. And one of the reasons that archaeologists still need him is that he saw things which have since disappeared, though he doesn't mention the Aubrey holes, which suggests that at that stage they had been grown over. Exactly. And, and I mean, both Aubrey and Stokely saw a version of Avebury, for example, that isn't there now because people were breaking the stones. And there's there's this wonderful description, well, it's, it's horrifying, but of, of, you know, the auto de fe is what he calls it, that the locals had built an enormous pit um, underneath the stones full of fire. And these kind of diabolical uh, locals were destroying the stones. And Aubrey describes the same thing. Yes, and it, which has gone on forever mm-hmm. um, and indeed still on Salisbury Plain. There are arguments, there have been arguments. I mean, during the Second World yeah. War, it was all ploughed up to grow vegetables much. To, and now, of course, there's an argument about the tunnel yeah. um, and what you're allowed to do in that landscape. Mm-hmm. But Stukeley, having smartly seen off Jones and the Romans, then embarks, as we were saying, you know, Aubrey just says, well, if it's pre-Roman, it must be Druidic because that's the only reference there is to um, a pre-Roman civilization in Britain. Yeah. And what he's done accidentally is open the door to the Druids who flood in through Stukeley's interpretation of the site and he discovers them that the unit of measurement is the Druidic cubit. Yes. Of, which is handy. It is. It is handy. It's also wrong. I mean, you know, I think. Well, you don't know it's wrong because we don't. <laughs> because there's no such thing. I mean. Well, I think it's a little bit too regular. But, well, but yeah, the whole yes, the whole thing doesn't. I mean, the problem for um, people who mind about this kind of thing is that Stukeley's insights into Stonehenge are so invaluable, mm. but his. Desire to his need. I mean, we saw the same kind of contrast between Jones and Wood. Jones is an architect. He just wants to know what Stonehenge is architecturally. John Wood of Bath minds terribly about fitting it into a Christian narrative. And Stukeley is the same. He's living at a time when the world is expanding. People are finding that people live in Mexico, that there are different religions, different mm-hmm. traditions, different mm-hmm. languages. And Stukeley was, I mean, he wasn't a nutcase. He was very serious about it. I mean, he taught himself Chinese. He yeah. wanted to understand yeah. how all this could fit into a kind of unified field theory of God. Mm-hmm. So that's what kind of set him off. Mm. Well, he he wants to make it all fit in with the biblical narrative by creating very ingenious arguments. Whereas, you know, to go back to Aubrey, Aubrey doesn't care how, you know, uh, Aubrey's sort of theory of, of the um, age of the earth is much more radical. Aubrey says this interesting thing that he thinks the earth is much older than people realise. Of course, he's right. But again, using one's historical imagination, it was very difficult to know how to measure geological time. He didn't even have that phrase. And bearing in mind that Stukeley was 
a much younger friend of Newton, but he was a friend of Newton. It's to Stukeley that Newton tells the story of watching an apple fall and suddenly thinking, why doesn't it fall sideways? Why does it go down? So he's, it's, he's very much up with the very latest scientific ideas. And Newton has opened up space hugely and the explorers and travellers have opened up space, but they're still stuck in this kind of narrow time, biblical time frame. Yeah, and I mean, the, the Stukeley as a biographer and Aubrey as a biographer have, have something in common, which is the idea that people sort of change over time and, and that people develop, which is not actually something that you got in biography before, no. because that's all about um, giving people exemplary models. So that's more like Jones Jones's view of Stonehenge, which is that you bring it back to an ideal form. And also the, the point about the wisdom of the ancestors, yeah. whereas both Aubrey and Stukeley are constantly trying to move knowledge on. Yeah. And so Stukeley and his patron spend these summers at Stonehenge and, in fact, on one occasion had dinner on top of one of the trilithons. We're right. allowed to do that now. And he is a, it's a mixture of scientific inquiry and he really loves Stonehenge. He says this extraordinary yeah. thing about it. It pleases like a magic spell. Yeah, yeah, he's in, totally in love with it. And, I mean, he's, I mean, Aubrey can draw, but Stukeley's um, draftsmanship is extraordinary and he draws and he draws and he draws and he's never without a notebook in his pocket. And he's, he's starting to do, you know, absolutely beautiful architectural drawings from the age of 16. And I think that, that Stonehenge and its environment stimulated, uh, you know, a, a real fascination for prospect drawings, for the ideal landscape and sort of proto-romantic sense of, you know, of, of the kind of beauty of, 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 the, of the barbarous antique. Yes, and what he sees at Stonehenge is not just the stone circle, he immediately, which is how he spots the avenue, of course, yeah. and he, how he spots the orientation, that he's looking out at a connected landscape. Yeah. And this is the very moment at which these grand allegorical, like Stuerhead, these grand allegorical landscapes are beginning to be seen as a way, a form of art, but also a form of expression. I mean, Aubrey knows the, uh, the formal gardens at Wilton House. He knows, I mean, he's got family members with ridiculously nice gardens. I mean, you know, the, the, his Welsh cousin um, has got sort of half of Glamorgan all beautifully landscaped. But it's a different aesthetic. But he's got, and Stukeley himself, though he was never in a position to have these grand gardens, but both in um, Grantham, where he practices the doctor, and then later on in Stamford, he created gardens about which, I mean, as you say, drew beautifully. So we have lots of drawings. It's quite hard to tell what he actually did and what he just planned to do. But he's got a circular orchard, which replicates the idea of Stonehenge. He's got a hermitage and a Merlin's cave. And these things were... Obviously, he thought they were attractive, but he also believed that they had a power. And in his temple at Stamford, when his wife Frances mm. miscarried, they buried the fetus mm. in front of the Roman altar with the two of them and her mother. And this was clearly a deeply felt and poignant moment. So it wasn't just about prettification. No, I mean, the child the size of a filbert. I know. I mean, it's so nut. poignant. It's very poignant. And, I mean, he also built a shrine to, to Newton in his garden using, um, you know, bits of Osney Abbey, which is the abbey in Oxford, which Aubrey had, draw, had had drawn when he himself was 16 because it was being robbed away and, and the stone was being, was being stolen. So it, it's kind of taking 
it, it's taking the, the sort of desecrated past and turning it into a new form of ceremonial. Yes, and believing that there is, as well as all this empiricism and measuring and trying to establish the facts on the ground, mm. but there is also a belief in a supernatural or supranatural quality that can inhere in the very stones so mm. that your druidic temple um, can have some kind of mystical power. And that's the point at which, of course, um, he begins to develop these extraordinarily elaborate ideas about not just the druidic cubit. But in the meantime, between Aubrey and Stukeley, um, a lot of material has appeared about the supposed history of the Druids, which Stukeley then draws on. Yeah, and an awful lot of drawings, um, some of which, you know, have kind of, I mean, with, with Eilat Sam's um, huge picture of the Wicker Man, which is which is based on Caesar's, you know, account of, of Druidic human sacrifices, where he says that they, they made an enormous human figure from from wicker and then drove animals and humans in it and then burnt burnt them alive and there's this extraordinary you know 17th century illustration of it and stukeley alongside all this scrupulous measurement and learning chinese was actually very happy to not ask too many questions when he just took this material from tolland and sams and everybody to build up this picture of a proto-christian civilization yes and um druids suddenly kind of become easy to visualize i mean shakespeare doesn't have any druids in king lear or cymbeline because you know they're not a thing Whereas in the 18th century, they are a thing. By the time Stukeley's finished, they're mm. a huge thing. Yeah, yeah, lots of pictures of them. We know what they look like. We know how they dress. We've got the robes, the mistletoe. So there were these very elaborate theories. And that, because one of another of Stukeley's sort of idée fixe, um, one of the more rational ones, was that it was a great pity that um, British people, English gents particularly, went on grand tours and looked abroad and didn't travel around their own mm. country. Mm. And part of his... Um, mission is to put Stonehenge on the tourist. And he really creates his itinerarium curiosum, is the first sort of touristic guide to Britain. So suddenly it goes from people like Dr. Johnson and Daniel Defoe looking at at piles of stones and saying, Defoe says, all you can say is there it is. But not after Stukeley, because he's he's put it on the map and he's given it a history, he's given it a narrative. And and he's shown you how to talk about it in a, an educated and cultivated way. And also they've got, you know, they've got the 1695 edition of Camden. I mean, it's heavy, but you can but you can take it with you. And the whole point of a, of a book like that that covers everything is that you can write all your disagreements in the margins. And people do, um, including Halley, for example. Um, oh, really? So, yes, Edmund Halley's um, copy. He of the Comet. He of the Comet, because um, he knew Stukeley very well, and he also knew Aubrey. Is uh, there's yes, a copy of it's um, in in his college in Oxford, and they they you know they write nonsense or they write very true or you know or, or they or they add their bit of measuring, but in a way the kind of the book then becomes the you know the, the opportunity for conversation for for questioning for adding material um, and for having a very good time you know out on the, on the in the landscape. And if if you're a landowner um, having improvements to your house or garden and holes are being dug, um, things might might come out of those holes that that might be interesting. Um, and therefore, you've got 
kind of burgeoning of private museums, private collecting, private curiosity. And if you're the Earl of Pembroke, you might want a little replica built in your garden. Well, this is the beginning of people having their own stone hinges, of course, at home and building these circles and pathways. And also, of course, the burgeoning of antiquarian societies, because you didn't have to be someone who'd taken a grand tour or somebody who'd been educated at university to take an interest in this. And also, one should say of Stukeley, because he founded one of these societies himself, inevitably, but he made his wife, Frances, a member. So she's the first to be admitted to an anti- a druidic, no less, um, a druidic antiquarian society. But yes, that, that burgeoning of local history and local knowledge. Yes, I mean, um, I mean, I think that women were probably involved informally. I mean, judging by, you know, reading between the lines in Aubrey. I mean, for example, when he shows, you know, to go back to, to Avebury briefly, when he shows Charles II uh, Silbury Hill and they go up it with the with the Duke of York. I mean, Stukeley insists they rode up it. Well, I don't think they rode up it. I think they went up on all fours. Um, but they found some snails at the top, you know, cue questions about the age of, you know, was this once underwater? Um, but the Duke of York takes it um, to Bath and, and shows his wife. Um, and then they, they call, you know, um, Charlton in for a discussion about it. Well, there were obviously always women in the conversation and yeah. often women in the room. But I think it is significant that Stukeley wants Francis yeah. to be actively at the table and contributing. Because it's a very long time before the Society of Antiquaries or the Royal Society is going to admit women formally. Yeah. Even though they that are... That was 20th century. Exactly. So um, one should just give him extra points for that because Definitely he does give get him extra badly points. marked down for the whole Druid thing. <laughs> well, if I'm going to give... Yes, Aubrey points would, would be that he gave um, the botanist John Ray's eight-year-old daughters a proper microscope. Um, very good. Very expensive. But yes, I mean, uh, Stukeley is positively greedy when it comes to institutional um, affiliations because he's got the Royal Society, he's got the Society of Antiquaries, he's got the Gentleman's uh, Society of, of Spalding. But rather sadly, the more elaborate the Druidic theories got, mm-hmm. uh, the smaller and more critical the audience um, at the Society of Antiquaries. Mm-hmm. And by the end of his life, because he produced not only his study of Stonehenge, but then the study of Avebury, which went even further. And he found, as John Wood later found at Bath, he found um, the symbol of the serpent in a circle. And this was what underlay Avebury, and this was what proved that the early Druids had intuited somehow the coming of Christ. Mm -hmm. And Roger Gale, who introduced him, as it were, to Aubrey, and who became his brother-in-law, says... In terms, you know, if you publish this, there's going to be a terrible row and, you know, no one's, there'll be great carping and peekering, he says, about this. But Stukeley by this stage is absolutely unstoppable. And one has to admit that, you know, by this stage he's obsessed with this idea. So he insists on promulgating it. And that very sadly, I think, discredits him and tarnishes his reputation. Yes. And, I mean, as we were saying earlier, you know, posterity is is kind of dependent on these early antiquaries for their raw material, whether it's, you know, biographical raw material or whether it's, um, you know, observations on the ground. So they're not, they're not allowed to be mad, you know, they're not allowed to get things wrong and they're not allowed to be pioneers. Well, because archaeologists never get anything Absolutely. Wrong. Never. Right. It's a well-known fact. No, it's a well-known fact. But I mean, of course, and particularly with Stukeley, 
though he didn't see the Aubrey holes. I mean, that's the other thing. If you had a sort of speeded up film of Stonehenge through mm. time, you would see things appearing and disappearing. And if the Aubrey holes weren't visible when he was there, the avenue, of course, was. And then the avenue wasn't visible again until the 20th century yeah. when you could actually fly over it. Yeah. Um, and it was visible from the air. Yeah, Aubrey didn't that, see it. But that had mm. disappeared. And so, yes, we rely a lot on Stukeley. And I have to say, my own feeling, and what you think about this, is that if he hadn't introduced the whole Druidic narrative, if he hadn't taken it from prehistory into history and made it into something that people could have a story about, I'm not sure it would have acquired the traction that it has in the national imagination. No, I mean, exactly. It's 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 the liveliness and the slight craziness of both of them. Um, and their, their kind of incredibly vivid overinvestment in, in this stuff that makes it work. There are other antiquaries doing similar things, but they don't matter. No. Well, thank you, Kate. Um, and good luck with the rest of Aubrey's afterlife. Thank you for asking me. Um, next time, I'm going to be talking to Seamus Perry about the romantics at Stonehenge, especially Blake and Wordsworth. And for more on Stonehenge, there's my book called Stonehenge, which came out in 2008. And for more antiquaries, you can look back to our earlier podcast series, Romantic History in 2022.